the book of John's Gospel, chapter 17 today. And it's kind of funny that it worked out because I started this looking this over some time ago and uh, kind of worked out to our week of prayer and, and uh, I think it's just a, a nice way to start the, the whole new season. And uh, we're looking at the high priestly prayer as it says in my Bible. Now, some people teach that this prayer by Jesus was done in the upper room um, after he'd finished his instructions to the disciples just before leading, leaving for the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, some people teach that it was on the way to the Garden that this prayer took place. Um, really, whether it happened in the room or on the way to the Garden, for me personally, yeah, I don't care. It's really kind of irrelevant. It's the prayer itself that's important here because it is considered without question one of the greatest prayers recorded in the Bible. It's a gentleman by the name of Philip, and I can never pronounce his last name, Melachthon. Uh, he was a German Lutheran uh, reformer, and he worked with Martin Luther. And he wrote about this prayer. He said, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, none exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime, than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. And as I was preparing this message um, for this morning, um, I've never really, you know, if I've read through the Bible, I, I read through, I've read through this prayer a number of times, but I was amazed when I had to sit down and really spend time with it at how much information there is here, how much we can learn from it. It isn't, it isn't that it's really complicated, because a lot of times it's somewhat repetitive, Yet there is this great depth to this prayer. There's great intimacy that's revealed about this person who's doing the praying. And when we pray, that's what honest, this is what honest, heartfelt prayer does. It gives insight to the innermost being of the one who's praying. It, there's this stark difference between the, our prayers when they're coming from our heart than those that are just learned by rote, um, that are just regurgitated. And it's not about the length of our prayers. I've got to say, I know some men of God and women of God, oh my goodness, they're just so eloquent when they pray. And myself, I just sometimes... I'm a little shorter with my prayers. I, I don't drag them out really. And, but it's not about the length. It's not about the use of great spiritual vocabulary. We're not out to impress God for sure when we pray. It's about our heart. And what better heart to look at here than the Son of the Most High? And what better time to do it? And we get to see that the, this the constant attitude of his heart. We get to see the constant attitude in his mind. We get to see his priorities. And that in turn should help us to see what our priorities should be when we pray. And as we read through this prayer, keep in mind the great privilege we have to listen in as God the Son is conversing with God the Father. 
And it's just before he's about to give his greatest gift to the world, to you and I, his life is a ransom on the cross. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. Uh, we open your word and we get to see your word. We get to see words that you offered up, Lord. Uh, we get to see a time of uh, unity between you and, and, and God the Father. Heavenly Father, help to open our eyes, help to open our hearts. Help me, Lord, to just move aside and share what it is you want, want us all to hear, what I need to hear. Lord, bless this time, bless this congregation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse, said, verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Uh, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, in that culture, we always bow our heads to pray. That's what we do in that culture. It was a lifting of the head. But why do you think Jar Jesus starts his prayer this way? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What can I learn? What can we learn <coughs> from these really few words? Well, let me tell you what kind of what I see. And certainly you may see more. First of all, I see a clear statement here. I see a clear statement that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you're here this morning and you have a little bit of doubt or you're wondering... Here is his declaration, simple, powerful. Our declaration, our clear reply here can be one of two things. Lord, I believe, or Lord, I don't believe. Pretty simple. Second thing I see, Jesus is following his own instructions here when he taught the disciples uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer. How did he start that off? Our Lord, or our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. When we pray, we are to begin with a clear statement and a mindful intention that we seek above all else God's honor and glory. Just like Jesus does here, when we pray, we set our agenda by explicitly stating that we desire his agenda. And Jesus is showing, perhaps reminding these disciples, as well as you and I, that when we pray, there is something higher at stake than our own personal desires. It's about confessing that our interests, as important as they are, as legitimate as our interests are, they're secondary to the highest value in all the universe, God's glory. Amen. And the third thing that I see here, uh, when Jesus asks to be glorified, that he's first and foremost really seeking the Father's glory. What do I mean? Jesus is not seeking his own glory apart from the Father's glory. He's not seeking to be glorious on his own. He's not looking for a private glory, but rather with the Father's glory embodied within himself. You know, this is, to me, this little moment is a personal uh, glory that only father and son can share. And we get, to, we get to experience it. You know, you and I were created for God's glory. 
Uh, we live to reflect God's glory. We get to share in God's glory. How wonderful. But only Christ, God incarnate, can ask to be glorified. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. You know, for you and I, to ask such a thing is really blasphemous. If we seek our own glory, we get, we're stepping into dangerous territory. Only God himself has the right to be glorified. Proverbs 25, 27 says, For men to seek their own glory is not glory. So let's read verse 1 and, and into verse 2. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus gave up his heavenly authority to come to earth in the form of a man so that we could live out the will of the Father to bring you and I and all those who believe back to him, back to this right standing before God. Jesus was in essence given this authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those who, as he puts it, the Father has given him. So let me ask you, did you know that you're a gift? That's pretty amazing. You and I are gifts. We're accustomed to think of Jesus as the Father's love gift to us. And he is. All we got to do is read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But here the Lord affirms that believers are the Father's love gift to the Son. And he has the authority to give us eternal life. All that requires is required of us, again, believe. Verse 3 goes on. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Seems like a simple statement to me when I read it. Eternal life is knowing God, the only true God and Jesus Christ. The key here is always the word knowing. What does it mean to know God? What does it look like? Well, it's more than just knowing he exists. It's more than just saying, you know what, I believe in God. Every fallen angel has a knowledge of God. Knowing God is about personal relationship, and that personal relationship comes from and through Jesus Christ. We cannot know the Father apart from the Son. That's in John 14. All the grace and love of God, all that he is, is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And Jesus says in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And you know what? That applies through all of Scripture. You know what? Those who look forward to the coming Savior can know the love and the grace of God through the promise of that coming Savior, the Christ. 
And here we are with these disciples. They're, they've experienced God firsthand through Christ. They walked with him. They talked with him. They learned from him. And you and I, we know God because we have this whole ministry. We have all of Jesus' ministry. We have the whole Bible. We get to see God through our personal experiences, through the experiences of others around us, and we get to see amazing things, miracles, grace. But to believe in God apart from Jesus will never save a soul, never save a lost soul from eternal hell. There is no salvation to be found by those who try to separate father and son. They are one. Nor is eternal life earned by our character. It's not earned by our conduct. It's a gift. And we receive that gift by admitting, you know what, I'm a sinner. And by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Verse 4. I glorify you, on, glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I read that statement, I think, wow, that's a strong, strong, confident statement. I'm going to read it again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You know, my prayers are not, I'm going to tell you, they are not that confident. I, you know what, I pray that the Lord would help me glorify him every day. That I'd be obedient and that I accomplish the work that he gives me to do. But I know, I can tell you honestly, sitting here today, without a doubt, I've let things slide. He's given me things to do that I just didn't do. And I can look back on him and go, oh. that he's giving me some things to do that I just said, you know what, I'll, I'll take care of it in a few days. And it was too late. But thankfully, you know what? He's full of grace and forgiveness. And thankfully, Jesus isn't like me. <laughs> thankfully, he can make this statement with, the, with a clear conscience, with this confidence, that he can turn to the Father and he says, I did the work and I glorified you. And that's something. You know what? No matter how often we seem to fall short of that, we need to try to aspire to do that every day as we live this life but we need to pray for it every day we often start our prayers every morning you know what Lord help me to glorify you in some way today don't know if I do but I ask for it verse 5 and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed Jesus is reclaiming what he gave up for you and I his heavenly glory. But you know what? As he comes to the Father with this request, there's this sense to me of this real humbleness. I don't think it was really necessary that he asked to be re-glorified in the, in the Father's presence. It was going to happen anyway. I think what Jesus is giving us here is a look into the humble and loving relationship between Father and Son. 
And then he goes on in verse 6. First uh, 6, we'll go to verse 8. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you, have give, you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So Christ, what he's saying here, is Christ has given his own, you and I, and all who believe, eternal life. But he also gave us something else during his time here on earth. He manifested, or made tangible, made evident, the Father's name. Father's name is all his character. The Old Testament Jews... They knew God as Jehovah, the great I Am. And Jesus took that name, that sacred name, and made it more meaningful. Jesus was the revelation of their Jehovah. I have manifested your name. You know what? In those days, in the Bible, names have an, this reference to, uh, to nature. So Jesus literally revealed to these disciples in the world the true nature of God, and he did so by his words and by his deeds. And we have believed. Three important words here that we read. They have believed, he says. We have believed. Because without belief, it's all for nothing. Belief is a very powerful driving force. It's so powerful, in fact, that entire nations have been built on it, entire nations have been destroyed because of it, or them. And what we see here in verses 7 and 8 is how important it is to both Father and Son that these apostles, and you, and I, not just have something to believe, but to believe the truth. And in verse 7, Jesus says, Jesus says, now they know. Now they know. Now you know. Now I know. We know. You know, in verse 8, he says, they have come to know the truth. And again, he says, they have believed that you sent me. And again, if you're here this morning and don't think God cares about you, think again. This must have been such a powerful emotional statement by Jesus here. Father, I just don't believe the emotion that must have been behind this. Father, they believe. Do you think he's saying that about you today? Father, he believes. She believes. Glory to you. They heard and they believed. So what we see next just makes total sense to me. It's a picture of who our Lord is. The intercessor. And because he lives in us, and you and me, I believe it's who we are to be as well. He intercedes on your behalf and my behalf to the Father. And he's this example for us to follow and intercede for others to Christ. It's part of what makes us unique as Christians. That we are to take on this selfless attitude and be interceding for people. It's this 
powerful to intercede. And I know there's some of you here that have seen that intercession in your prayers and what it's done in people's lives. And I know certainly my wife and I have seen it. Sometimes overnight in somebody's life, in family members. It's powerful. Verses 9 and 10. I'm not praying for them. I'm not, I, pardon me, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You know, it isn't that Jesus doesn't care for the world. We know better than that. John 3.16 says otherwise. Rather, he knows that the fate of these disciples, the fate of the whole world, is dependent on the faith of those who choose to follow him. Let me say that again. He knows that the fate of these disciples and of the whole world is dependent on the faith of those who choose to follow him. The sovereignty of Jesus will accomplish his purpose, period. But in that sovereignty, he designated you, and he designated me, and he designated these disciples, simple human beings, as his means of reaching the world. And if these guys fail, what happens to the message? If they falter, that same message can get warped, corrupted, be limited. The gospel message and mission at this time that we're reading about is now dependent on these disciples that he's called, that God has given him. And the situation hasn't changed. The players are different. God's kingdom is being built by Jesus, working through the ministry of those who are called. But this is where it starts. So Jesus makes intercession here for these disciples, and he continues to do so on our behalf, on your behalf, on my behalf, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And you can read about that in Hebrews 7, verse 25. Our high priest has not left us in this world alone with a me message of this magnitude and importance. He hasn't left us with no support for telling it. He's not just a heavenly observer. He's participating. It's his work that he started, and he's not going to just leave it. Verse 11 goes on, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I think there's a couple of, his focus is kind of twofold here, is what I'm seeing. Jesus' eyes are on uh, the immediate return to his glory. But he's also thinking at this time, you know what? He's thinking about the protection and welfare of these disciples. A lot rests on them. We were just talking about that. So his prayer continues to be this powerful intercession on their behalf. You know what? It's not going to be very long before they're going to be without his physical presence. They're going to be without his physical guidance, his physical wisdom. 
they're going to literally need the power of God to keep them and to protect them, to comfort them, to give them understanding, especially for what's about to transpire in but a few short hours after, after this prayer. And they will need, to, need prayer to help them understand and rely on the Holy Spirit. It's going to be sent to comfort and counsel. You know, this prayer should give us all a great sense of relief when you think about it. Why? Because Jesus makes it clear that we are never left to our own efforts. You know what? There's certainly times we think we can manage. I've certainly gone on my own strength a number of times uh, just forgetting how weak we really are, what the world and that the world, the flesh, the devil are so mighty, so pervasive, and so seductive that we could never keep ourselves by our own efforts. It isn't possible. We need to be kept from division. We need to be kept from error. We need to be kept from sin. We need to be kept from hypocrisy. And the list goes on. You know, I, I'm amazed, and I can just speak for myself, how quickly I can go from walking with Jesus full of grace and love today and for you and you for me, and then tomorrow I got something going on that I'm full of resentment and I'm full of anger and I'm full of judgment. So Jesus goes before the Father here and he asks for protection for these disciples to be kept. Not through angels, not through a church leader, not by more effort on their part, so certainly not more effort on our part, but kept by the very name of Almighty God himself, kept by all his character, all his authority, all that he is, Romans 8, 31 to 39 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That needs to mean something to us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or, sor or sword? We might feel like it sometimes. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
This prayer here is for these disciples, these apostles. This prayer is for you. And this prayer is for me. And this prayer talks about us being one. Just as the Father and Jesus are one. And you know what? To be one, it takes the Word in our lives. It takes prayer in our lives. It takes fellowship in our lives. Because the Word reveals all that we have in Jesus Christ. Giving us faith. It gives us assurance. Prayer is our connection. It's our connection to Jesus who then is interceding for us. And you know what? The Father always answers the prayers of his Son. They are one. So Jesus isn't going to be interceding for you and I about things that are going to be a no. And fellowship, the church, it's there because we're to spur each other on to love and good deeds. One body with one head. You know what? The New Testament doesn't know, it, it knows nothing of isolated believers. Wherever you find saints, you find fellowship. Why? Because God's people need each other. We need each other. All through this prayer, we witness the close, loving relationship between Father and Son. And I don't think that's something we should skip over or just take for granted because it's an example that we are to aim for the same thing with each other, with Christ living in us. Verse 12 goes on. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus kept faithfully all that the Father gave him. All of these guys. He keeps you. He keeps me. The believer, then, is secure. We are secure because that's the nature of God. It's the nature of salvation. But what about Judas, you might ask? Wasn't he secure? Why didn't Jesus keep him safe? Well, the simple reason, Judas was never one of Christ's own. Judas had never been given to him by the Father. Judas was not a believer. It's hard to believe, I know, that you could spend that much time with God incarnate and not be a believer. John 6.64 says, But there are some of you, and Jesus is saying this, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me and let it, unless it is granted him by the Father. Powerful. And then in John 13, 11, not all of you are clean, he says. Judas is not an example of a believer who lost his salvation. He's an example of an unbeliever who pretended to have salvation, 
but was finally exposed as a fraud. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. You know, in these late hours of Jesus' earthly life, he still has joy. Why? Because it's not attached to earthly things. It's so easy, and it's easy for me. Like, there's nothing like going out and getting something new. Boy, that just fills me with joy. Something you just wanted. Maybe a new car, or might be a new house, might be a, could be something even small, a new piece of jewelry. You just find this joy in it. But it doesn't take long. You can own a car for about six months, and then you're like, yeah, well, I'm used to it. And it's not a lot of joy in it anymore. Suddenly you're lamenting because the payments are a lot more than you probably should have paid or I should have paid. <laughs> Jesus' joy was rooted in unbroken fellowship with God, his Father. Remember that. Unbroken fellowship with the Father. You want joy in your life? Spend time in fellowship. Not just with your fellow believers, but with your, your creator. Because it changes your focus. His joy was the fruit of true faith and confidence in his Father. His joy came from seeing the great things God had done. Don't you find that? I just find that a, seeing the great things God has done. When you watch someone that is going through maybe a difficult time or whatever it happens to be, and you can stand back and watch God working in their lives. I've watched God working in a non-believer's life. And I've stab, stood back and gone, wow, can you not see this happening in your life? But they can't. They don't know that God's working. They don't know that God's protecting them. They don't know that God is, um, has his hand upon them, that he cares for them, and they don't, they don't even believe in him. But as believers, we just have this sight to see this is God working here and it fills me with joy and it should fill each one of us of joy with joy when we see this going on in people's lives and it's that same joy that Jesus is talking about that he wants to see fulfilled in these disciples and in you and I look beyond look beyond your circumstances because there's something so much better waiting in verse 14, I have given them your word and the word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So we have the word. The word is a gift. It's a gift from God to you and I. The Father gave the words to the Son. The Son gave them to the disciples who in turn passed them along. They've been passed along through history. They're passed along to you and I as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. The word is divine in origin and it's a precious gift from heaven. The world would tell you, no, 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 the, world, the word's not divine in origin. It's a bunch of guys sat around and just dictated the word. But we know better. We should know better. And we should never take it for granted because for you and I to be overcomers, we need to know the word and we need to use it in our daily lives it gives us joy and it gives us strength and we need those things if we're going to overcome 
this life. You know, Jesus was a man of joy. You know, sometimes in movies and whatnot, he's depicted as this melancholy, almost kind of sad, heavy burden. Uh, Jesus had great joy. He had his moments of sadness. We know he cried. But he had great joy. He had foresight to look beyond circumstances and to rely on inward spiritual resources that were hidden from the world. And this is the kind of joy he wants for all of us as his children. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Psalm 119 Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as, as much as in all riches. So with all the wonders of God's word, all the joy, all the assurances of God's love and his grace that this word carries, plus the salvation of Christ available to all who believe, pretty amazing things, why the hatred You know, I think there's a lot of reasons. But I think maybe the greatest is that it reveals to the world what the world really is. The Word exposes darkness. Thankfully, we get to stand and claim exactly what Jesus was claiming. We are not of this world. And I think that kind of ticks the world off a little bit. Misery loves company. If we're going down, don't tell us you're not going down. We want you going down with us. No. You know, with all the stuff going on in the news today, and I really avoid a lot of news anymore because it, it's over the top. And people who are, I can bump into people, whether on the street or the gym or in the mall or wherever, and the, the conversations that come up about, oh my gosh, look at what's going on. I'm like, yeah. can't say that I'm caring a whole lot because I got something so far greater waiting for me and all of us do, why am I going to spend a lot of time worrying about what's going on in the world? I do my part, I do what I can, but I belong somewhere else, and so do you. Jesus, uh, verse 15 and 16. I do not ask that you t take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus isn't saying that he doesn't want us with him. The whole point of the gospel, the whole point is to bring us back to God. What he's saying here is that there's work to be done. We may not be of this world anymore. The fact is, we shouldn't even feel like we belong anymore. You shouldn't feel like you belong here anymore. But it doesn't mean we give up on it and we walk away. God's purpose isn't done yet. We aren't supposed to take the gift of salvation, put it in our pocket, or tuck it under a, a rock somewhere and selfishly run and hide. Jesus is for everyone. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's the job of these first disciples to spread that message and then train up more disciples, show the world the truth.
Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.2, And what you have heard from me, he's saying to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, that doesn't mean each one of us has to have a Bible study in our homes. and It's just sometimes sharing a, a Bible verse. I had a young gentleman that we have been reaching out to for the last year in Vancouver that God brought into our, we call him our adopted son in Vancouver. And we've had the, such a messed up life, but such a wonderful young man. And we've been able to pray over him. And he invited us for Christmas dinner um, last year, um, which we're like, okay, we don't know anybody else. We, we honestly didn't even know his last name at the time. And, uh, and I just, we've just given him support. I just said, you know, no matter what, we'll love you always. And we try to guide him in the right direction and making wise choices and, and uh, that he needs some, some counseling and things like that. But... Uh, the other day, you know, he, was, he knew he was involved in some things he shouldn't be because that's what he does. And the suggestion, and we were texting back and forth, I said, you know, you, you might want to try changing who you hang out with. Like, and uh, he said, you know, uh, up at school, uh, up at the college, he's taking some courses. He said, there's a table with some Christians. I'm like, well, why don't you just walk over and talk to them? I said, if they're truly Christians, I said, they will welcome you with grace and love. And I said, if, they're, if they, I said, it's not an indoctrination. Just go and talk to them. And I said, if they try to do anything that sounds wacky, you come to me and I'll come and straighten them out. <laughs> so the other day, about a week ago, I'm laying in bed. Susan and I are both in bed and my phone pings. And I open my phone and here's this Bible verse from him. I'm like, Wow. I got to tell you, it's nothing to do with me. This is another one of those times. God's working on someone who's a non-believer. And, and I've said to him, Susan and I both said to him, God's working in your life. He's trying to get your attention. I know you can't see it. You have to trust me that I can see it. Just trust me. We can see it. But taking the job of witnessing to others and spreading this gospel takes protection. It takes all the help we can get. And that help comes from the intercession of Jesus Christ, praying that we are kept from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See how he's kind of following his instructions to the disciples about how to pray? Verse 17 and 18. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctify them. It means to be set aside for holy service to God. You know what's interesting to hear, uh, interesting here for me, is how Jesus connects sanctification and the truth of his word. Spurgeon wrote, the more truth you believe, the more sanctified you will be. The operation of truth upon the mind is to separate a man from the world unto the service of God. 
So again, the more truth you and I learn and believe from God's word, the more sanctified we become. And the more sanctified we become, the, more, the, the farther the world seems to be from us. And the farther the world strays from God, just makes it even a bigger gap. The more we know deep in our hearts that, you know what, we're really not of this world. Verse 20. I do not ask for, those, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he prays for the 11 disciples, but he also has the heart and the vision to pray beyond them. He prayed for those who had come to faith by the testimony of these disciples. He prayed for you, and he prayed for me. He knew his intercession for them would prevail, and it did. And he knows his intercession for you and for me will prevail. He shows us all here that intercession isn't just for the moment. It's for the future. It's for God's will today and tomorrow and for all time until we are at his feet. Verse 21 to 23. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I, give, I have given to them, that, you may, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become per perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Seems like a lot of words there. But here... The burden of his prayer goes back to unity. This whole prayer has had such a focus, really. The whole prayer has been focused on unity, amongst other things. In the beginning, we witnessed the unity of the Father and the Son. Then the disciples are brought into the fold as he's praying. All mine are yours, and yours and mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus says, I kept them in your name, unity. He goes on to ask for unity of joy, then unity of position, being set apart. And finally, unity of purpose. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And now in these last verses, he brings present and future believers together in prayer to be one with the Father, the Son, and with each other. If you want to know what Jesus envisions here, in, 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 in our future, at the end of time, so to speak, go to Revelation 7 and read verses eight and, eight, uh, 9 and 10. And what it says is, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with loud voices, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne." And to the Lamb. Amen? Spurgeon wrote, We are to be faithful to truth, but we are not to be of a contentious spirit, separating, our, separating ourselves from those who are living members of the one and indivisible body of Christ. To promote the unity of the church by creating new divisions is not wise. Cultivate at once the love of the truth and the love of the brethren. He goes on to ask, Why are we not one? Sin is the great dividing element. The perfectly holy would be perfectly united. 
The more saintly men are, the more they love their Lord and one another, and thus they come into closer union with each other. So if Jesus is crying out for believers to be one, do you think maybe it's important? Divisive thinking and behavior aren't compatible in heaven. Division is separation, and separation is what sin caused in the first place. And we're so easily dragged back into it after all the Christ did to bring us to God, we can so easily, and I know I can, I can get sucked right back into division. Somebody does something to me, and I'm sure somebody's done something to you, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh my gosh. Can say things or do things that you just think, seriously? And it starts to cause division. When you and I were born again, we were given God's glory to dwell, to dwell within us. It doesn't matter what we look like on the outside. Unity, unity is not based on the externals of the flesh but the internals and externals of the Spirit who now dwells within you and I. And we have to look beyond our race and colors and abilities and issues and build our fellowship on our new birth. You know, there's lots of reasons we can find that'll divide us. And the majority of them lie in the flesh. But there are greater reasons why we should love one another, why we should live in unity. Number one, we trust the same Savior. We share the same glory. We will one day enjoy the same heaven. We belong to the same Father. We, seem, we seek to do the same work of witnessing to the lost world that Christ alone saves from sin. We believe the same truth. Those are good reasons to, to be uh, one heart and one mind. In verse 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Just very simple. Jesus desires for you and I to be with him, to see his glory. What a statement. I want him to be here. I want him to see my glory, Father. To witness firsthand the love of the Father and the Son. We get to witness that firsthand. And finishing up, it says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Nope, no more petitions here in his prayer. He's just simply pointing out the state of the world. The world does not know the Father, but that we believers do. All because the Son revealed himself to you and I. And he promises that he will continue to reveal not only the Father to you and I every, and every believer, but the great love that the Father has for the Son. And that we have that same love in us through Jesus. So I'm going to ask Barb to come back up. Um, we're going to